Welcome to Your Cathedral Podcast, a podcast from the Cathedral Church of St. Luke and St. Paul in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information on our church, please visit yourcathedral.org. Good morning, everybody. My name's Rob. I'm an usher at the cathedral, and I'm also the chaplain, uh, the Anglican chaplain at the Citadel. So some new faces. Love to meet you after the service. Please pray with me. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would send a soft heart to say some hard things. And I ask this in your mighty name. Amen. Have a seat, gang. I met a traveler from an antique land who said two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well knew those passions read which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things. The hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, King of Kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare. The lone and level sands stretch far away. Percy Bysshe Shelley, poem called Ozymandias, published in a London newspaper in 1818. I've seen Ozymandias, the Greek name for Ramesses II, also called Ramesses the Great. I've seen him in person at the British Museum when my wife and I lived in England. He's nearly nine feet tall. It's close to seven feet wide. He weighs 7.25 tons. It's cut from a single block of granite. In 1798, Napoleon ordered his men to remove Ozymandias from his resting place in Egypt and bring him to Paris. But the expedition was a failure. In 1815, the British Consul General Henry Salt succeeded where Napoleon failed, used a primitive hydraulic lift and wooden rollers to move the great Ozymandias to the River Nile, where he was floated to Cairo, placed on a ship in Alexandria, shipped to London in 1818. And he's been there ever since. In his day, the great Ozymandias was the most powerful ruler the world had ever seen. He was most likely, by the way, the pharaoh of the Exodus, recorded in the Old Testament. The only thing left of this venerable and great man is a granite statue severed from the waist down, missing both arms, dispossessed from the soil of his empire, gawked at by tourists like me on foreign soil. Shelley's poem has always held a fascination for me because of his ability to capture multiple perspectives at one time. On the one hand, we have the perspective of the sculptor who no doubt saw Azamandius in all his glory, his wrinkled lip and his sneer of cold command, 
Also, we have the perspective of Ozymandias himself, the self-proclaimed king of kings. Then we have the perspective of Shelley, many thousands of years later, who can see the ruins, not only of Ozymandias himself, but also of his once fertile and powerful empire. The lone and level sands, they stretch far away. The most haunting line of the poem, at least to me, is the fifth from the last, printed in your bulletin. Look on my works, he mighty, and despair. Ozymandias, no doubt, intended the mighty would behold the work of his empire. But now his work is ruined. Shelley wants the mighty, and perhaps even us, to consider even the grandest works can be brought to nothing. We may just share in the shambles and the despair. So our scripture reading for today, we meet King David, and we meet him in the ruins of his work on what I suspect might be the worst day of his whole life. His nation has been split asunder by a bloody civil war. Two of his sons are dead. One, Amnon, has been killed at the hands of his half-brother, Absalom. Absalom lies dead at the hands, ultimately, of his own father, King David, who, though he ordered the boy be kept safe, nevertheless ordered his troops to assault the position. At the news of his own son's death, we read what I think is the most painful verse in the entire New Te- Old Testament. My son, my son Absalom, oh my son Absalom, oh Absalom, my son, my son, look at my works, ye mighty, and despair. I want to talk with you this morning about legacy, specifically what happens when they're ruined what God might have to say about it in the gospel of his son, Jesus Christ. There are mighty in the room. I know some of you with important names, powerful law firms, business empires you've kept quiet, tenured positions, and the perils of legacy to you I think are probably obvious, but I also want to talk to smaller people because the perils of legacy eat at us just as much. I want the attention of fathers who fear they spent too little time with their children or fathers who spent too much of the wrong kind of time with their children. I want the attention of friends who didn't answer what turned out to be the final phone call or young people who may have passed up what in hindsight was the golden opportunity. And this morning I want to speak to those who are looking at the ruins or the potential ruins, a better word than Ramesses. I'll be loosely in 2 Samuel chapter 18, verse 8 to 33, if you want to follow along. And I say I'll be loosely there because... Patrick Schlabs assigned me some five chapters from the Old Testament. 
I love Patrick so much. I'll be glad when the sermon series is over. (laughs) David mustered the men who were with him and appointed over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. David's gathered an army against his own son, a rebel named Absalom. How did we get here? Well, we'd have to go back several chapters to chapter 13 where we would learn how we got here. Amnon, son of David, it's the half-brother of Absalom, by the way, the half-brother of a young lady we're about to meet, Tamar. Amnon, son of David, fell in love with Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom, son of David. And his love turned into obsession, and his obsession turned into violence. Amnon was stronger, our author bluntly notes, and he raped her. We're told King David was furious about what happened. We're not told that he did anything about it. Tamar went to live with her brother Absalom in the socially constructed isolation and disgrace that is unfairly, to this day, common of victims of sexual violence. Common and unfair. Common and wrong. While Amnon was free to return to his palatial estate, which is also common and wrong. What about Absalom? Absalom waited. He waited for two years, and then he invited Amnon to a party. And he waited till late in the evening when Amnon was full of wine, and he gave an order. And when he gave the order, his men emerged from the shadows and they killed Amnon at the banquet table. The whole affair could have written by Mario Puzzo and directed by Martin Scorsese. Look on my works, he mighty. Look at what I have done. And despair. Absalom is banished from David's kingdom for two years before his advisors convinced him to let his son return. The scripture says that David's heart longed for Absalom the entire time. And when he returned, his son Absalom immediately set to work on a conspiracy to overthrow his father. It's worth thinking for a moment why he set to work on a conspiracy to overthrow his father. And I can think of at least two reasons. The first reason is that Amnon's rape of Tamar is not the first instance of sexual violence in this particular family. You'll remember the story of the king on his balcony seeing Bathsheba, and like his son Amnon, he was also stronger. He was stronger than Bathsheba, and he ordered his men to bring her to his palace. There's a fairly heated contemporary debate as to whether or not Bathsheba was a willing participant or whether this represents an instance of sexual violence. It seems to me that those who make the case that she was a willing participant have an overly optimistic view of the rights and privileges of women in the ancient Near East, especially when armed guards of the king of the nation knock on her door. Either way, 
Violence is introduced into the narrative when David arranges for Bathsheba's husband to be killed. Our story of the tragedy of Absalom and David actually begins here. With David forcefully taking a person for himself. The very act that his son Amnon was guilty of. For which Absalom would kill him. It seems Amnon might have learned something from his father and that was this. Powerful men can and often do take what they want from the weak and the vulnerable with very little consequence. Like father, like son can be a compliment, but it doesn't have to be. We all fear handing down our worst traits to our children, don't we? I've been kept up late nights praying for my children's health, like I bet you have if you're a parent. I've been kept up late at night praying for my children's future like I bet you have if you're a parent with all the things about college debt swirling around. I'm going to take no issue about it from the pulpit, but I have stayed up late asking God, how are we going to send these kids to college? Nothing has kept me up later than conversations I didn't have but needed to, conversations I had but didn't need to, little things that I know have brought so much ruin in my life, is that popping up in theirs? If David was ever afraid that his worst self would show up in his children, then his fears are realized in his son Amnon. And I think this may be a reason for Absalom's conspiracy. Because in the sins of the son, he saw his own dad. And he hated him. The other reason for this conspiracy, I think, is something a little more noble. I think there's a heartfelt longing for justice in this conspiracy. When Absalom's welcomed back into the kingdom, he immediately positions himself as a judge for the wronged and the taken advantage of. He positions himself at the gate and he proclaims, if only I were appointed judge in the land, everyone who has a complaint or case could come to me and I would see that they receive justice and I believe him. Tamar had a complaint, as did Absalom on his sister's behalf, and David did nothing. And if you have ever seen someone grievously wronged, grievously ruined and gotten no help, you know how angry that can make you. You know how zealous that can make you for justice. And there was no justice for Tamar. So it seems as if Absalom, knowing what it means to be without justice, took it upon himself to bring justice to the needy, but he too has learned something from his father whether he would like to admit it or not. He has learned from his father a certain reliance upon violence and force. You might remember that one of David's longings, one of David's dreams for his future was to build the temple of the Lord. Did you know that? But David was not permitted to build the temple of the Lord. Do you know why David was not permitted to build the temple of the Lord? 
In 1 Chronicles chapter 28, verse 3, God says to David, You are not the man to build my temple because you are a man of violence. You are a man of bloodshed. Absalom was a man of violence. And Absalom was a man of bloodshed. And he used it to solve a range of problems. Problems I happen to be very sympathetic with, by the way. He is his father's son. And though the sins of the father manifest in different ways than in his brother Amnon, they manifest nonetheless. It's after a period of successfully bringing justice to the poor and needy, he actually raises a populist army. As with Amnon's murder, David notices the plot too late and he's forced to flee the city in haste. That is the beginning of a civil war that is really about the sins of a very small family. Absalom happened to meet the servants of David on the battlefield. That's verse 9 of our reading today. He's riding on the back of a mule and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak and his head caught fast in the oak and he's suspended between heaven and earth. And the ruin is about to begin. Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann comments on this passage with an awful lot of heart, I think. Absalom is suspended between life and death, he wrote, between the sentence of a rebel and the value of a son. Between the severity of the king and the yearning of the father, he's no longer living because he's utterly vulnerable, but he's not dead. Joab, David's right-hand man, as you heard in the reading, plunges javelins into his heart and kills him. And when David finds out that Absalom is no longer suspended between life and death, no longer sentenced between the sentence of rebel and the value of a son, no longer stuck between the severity of the king and the yearning of the father, when the balance has tipped... We come across the haunting words, Oh, my son Absalom. My son, my son Absalom. Would I have died instead of you, O oh, Absalom? My son, my son. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. What does it mean to be a son of David? We sang about it on the way in. I think it was the first song. What does it mean to be a son of David? You know, for a thousand years, what it meant to be a son of David was summed up in this verse. It meant to be a participant in ruin. Even the prophets called David a stump. That's what it meant for a thousand years. To be a son of David was to be a participant in the most heart-rending episode of the Old Testament. But a thousand years later, there is a man 
who is a son of David, a direct descendant of the people that we read about right now, related to them by name and blood. His name is Jesus of Nazareth. His life, his morality, his spirituality, his kindness, his mercy, his steadfastness, and his commitment to the Father's will is also a legacy. It's a legacy so powerful and so grand that it fundamentally and forever changes what it means to be called the son of David. Jesus of Nazareth is the final destination of the ruin of this man. And the New Testament tells us very mysteriously that all of the ruin of every man, woman, and child that we've been subjected to and that we have participated in finds its fulfillment on Good Friday. As this son of David is ruined before our eyes. You could very well say on Good Friday of our collective work, look, ye mighty, and despair. But there's a difference between what this son of David is able to do amidst the ruins and what the sons of David were able to do in our passage today. Three days later, this son of David, Jesus of Nazareth, is able to begin rebuilding everything. He's able to take what was broken on Friday and put the pieces back together. And in putting the pieces back together, he's not just putting back the pieces of his body, but he's putting back the pieces of David's story. He's putting back the pieces of Tamar's story and Amnon's story and Absalom's story. And he's recasting what it means to be a son of David, raising it from the dead. What am I talking about? Well, what would it mean to Tamar to be called a son of David? I don't mean calling her a son of David. But what is she likely to hear when she hears son of David? Violence. Pain and humiliation. You know, one of the things I prayed about before I preached this is I do expect to meet Tamar one day. And I do expect to meet David one day. Maybe even Absalom and Amnon. And what I prayed about this morning is Please don't let me speak wrongly about people I will meet one day. Help me not to slander them or be too hard on them. I would love to meet them. They say that's about the way it is. And so maybe if Tamar were here with us, she would say there is a son of David who will do me no wrong 
He would never hurt me. He would never mistreat me. He knows how to stand up for me in such a way as not to put me away in secret like my brother Absalom did. There's a son of David who knows how to turn the lights on so that when I tell people what happened to me, they don't call me a liar or worse. He's coming. Wait for him. If she were here, she'd say, I've already met him. And he's changed what it, he has changed what I hear when I hear son of David. What would it mean for Amnon? It would mean Amnon actually has a path forward in forgiveness rather than slaughter. Now I want to draw a distinction between cutting someone slack and forgiving them. David cut Amnon slack. David knew it was wrong. He was furious, but he did nothing. He didn't even bring it up. Friends, that's not grace and that's not forgiveness. Implied in every act of forgiveness is an accusation. Have you ever thought about that? If someone were to say to you, I forgive you, isn't your first instinct to say, for what? And immediately go into defending yourself? Well, friends, when Jesus forgives our sins, he's already had the trial. And we've already been found guilty. There's no defense to be made. We're not dealing with the verdict. We're dealing with the consequence. And the consequence of all those who've come to Jesus is that they have the forgiveness of sins. They have a future and a path where they're not defined by the worst thing they've ever done. In case that sounds like Amnon's getting off easy... I would like you to sympathize with him a little bit, as hard as that might be. It is enormously hard to step out into the light and admit what one has done, isn't it? If you've ever read some of the more frightening passages in the book of Revelation, when the Lord returns, people cry out, mountains fall on us. Why would they rather a mountain fall on them? Then come face to face with Jesus Christ. Because Jesus turns the light on. And I think there are people who would rather be damned than exposed. That day is coming for everyone. With exposure, there is future, there is life, there's Easter. But in the dark, we're stuck in ruins. If Absalom were here, he might say, I've met a brother of mine, another son of David. And he's taught me a better way to pursue justice. He's taught me a way to pursue justice that doesn't rend fabric further. That doesn't tear families further apart. This son of David, my brother taught me to pursue justice at my expense with my body and my blood not at the expense of other people's bodies and other people's blood and it is a better way he's shown me that and I think if David were here 
he would say, my son, my son, my great, 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 great grandson, Jesus, has given it all back to me. I had to wait a really long time, a thousand years. You know, Soren Kierkegaard, he said, a human being needs to know that even if everyone else gave up on him, even if he were on the verge of giving up on himself, God is the God of patience. And when ruin visits us, I want it fixed now. Not everything can be fixed right now. What happened to David on this day was not given back for a thousand years. But on Easter Sunday, Jesus did not just raise himself from the dead. He raised King David's ruined legacy from the dead as well. Because the meaning Jesus gave to what it means to be called a son of David will forever be associated with things you would not actually read about David in this book. So I want to just close with two things. If you're here exploring Christianity and you want to know one thing it could mean for you today if you were to accept it, this is what I would want to say to you. The Easter story of the resurrection of Jesus, the better word than Ramesses, the restoration from ruin, it means many things, but one thing it means for you is you do not always have to be associated with the worst thing that has happened to you or the worst thing you have done. Because David is no longer associated with his worst day and his worst mistakes. Every time someone says, Son of David, they think of Jesus Christ. You no longer have to be associated with your worst day or the worst thing you've ever done. But God's plan is that you would be forever from here on out associated with something better. A man named Jesus who has a future for you, not in the ruins, but in the restoration. There's a future for you. It's free for you, although you heard some of the steps might be hard. Very costly for him. But if you just ask for it today, even if you don't know what it means, it would be put in process. For the Christians, I'll speak to you last. Normally I do it the other way around. But when people feel ruin coming to them, they panic. And when they panic, sometimes they think the patient way of Jesus will not work in this situation. And so I hear people in our politics right now saying, now's not the time to turn the other cheek. Right now we need a warrior like David. Where's the sword? I hear people frustrated with injustice saying, now's not the time for the way of the cross. Now's the time for Absalom. <laughs> Do not forsake the way of the author of life. Because the ways of men whose ruin is record in this book seem more expedient. Don't try to get to the protection of something in three days with panic. What if you wait for a thousand years if need be would be Easter. And so we adopt the way of Jesus.
We adopt the way of the cross. We adopt the way of patience. And we trust one day that God really will put away Good Friday and bring out Easter for everyone. That is the legacy that we all have in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, be with us. Be with us for the hard road to Golgotha. The time of giving of life and sacrifice and blood and mercy and love so that we might participate in the legacy of Easter Sunday. We ask this in the mighty name. Amen.